0: Good morning, this is Howard Smith and I'll be your host along with Ronaldo Brutico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as I think you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy and I'm a member of the Board of Directors of the Academy as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with an expanded lightning round. As always, we will include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already have several questions in the queue that we've received by email. However, if you'd like to place a question during the course of our program today, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to you, our members and listeners, with concrete, I'm sorry, to present for you concrete action ideas. Today we're going to be discussing, A, one, concrete steps people can take to reform the financial system, including how small shareholders can use their proxy ballots to make their voices heard in corporate boardrooms, and why such steps are critical to counter the Supreme Court's recent decision allowing unlimited corporate political expenditures. The second topic, and one that's actually in the news this morning, is the debate over whether China is keeping its currency artificially low to gain a competitive advantage, and how this and other political debates are cloaking the real challenges in rebuilding the U.S. and global economies. Again, after the first segment, we'll be doing our expanded lightning round, a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, real estate. And, again, with particular emphasis on ideas you can actually use yourself. Uh, Ronaldo, um, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is, again, to present to our members uh, very much concrete, actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices to business and society. As you do your introduction this morning, can you expand upon this idea a little bit for our audience and explain exactly what this means?
1: Good morning, Howard. And I'd love to. And, and let me start with the most important thing. It means is it means that we want the people who listen to this call, and who who are hear about what we're talking about, to prosper financially in ways that they would never otherwise be able to without this information. It's really important that people realize we're not asking people to do all the right things for just the right reasons. Although that should be reason enough what we're trying to do is give our team the information so that they can make way more money with their savings. They can be safe in times of pending recession and peril. Uh, they can do better on the rebound that we're going through now, etc. So we want our team to be shining examples that it's not only does conscious business make sense from a moral point of view and from the point of, view of a long-term sustainability, but it makes more sense from the practical day-to-day economic reality that our members and the listeners to our show will experience. That's what's really important. So when we talk about, as we're going to, for example, China and the, and the renminbi, or sometimes known as the Wan, when we talk about that, we're not going to talk about just in the abstract. We're going to talk about what does it mean for you in your pocketbook, in your IRA, in your retirement package, in, in your savings account, in what you're doing to set aside money for kids going to college, it's, it's about you and how you can be not only a thoughtful participant in the global and local economy, but how that participation will economically benefit you. Let me give you an example. Uh, two and a half years ago when we first started predicting the terrible recession, we accurately said what happened and did exactly the way we said it, exactly when we said it would. One of the things we pointed out was these incredibly crazy instruments called derivatives, and we've been talking about it now for several years. I found it fascinating yesterday that the former CEO of Citigroup basically said, gee, they didn't know they were that risky. That was the front page of the Financial Times yesterday. Now, I don't know what he was reading and listening to, but apparently he wasn't reading the Academy's reports and or listening to the show. Had he been... The U.S. government would not have had to bail out Citigroup, which, by the way, is still kind of a wing of the U.S. government. Now, why is that important? Because people own 30% of the stock of American corporations. You're going to be hearing about that in our first major topic. It's something that you do not because you're greedy capitalist people trying to get advantage, but because you have to diversify your money from just savings accounts or interest-free accounts because normal inflation would eat it alive. So you have to do something if you want to save for the future. America's historically had a very low savings rate. It hit the bottom of two, negative 2.4% in 2009. It's going to start coming up slowly but surely. And as it does, what do we individually do with our savings? Because savings is a very important part of everybody's life experience. What we can do with those savings, whether it's an IRA, KEO, 401k, retirement account, or the like... What you do with that money every single day will determine your happiness in the days to come. And we want the people who subscribe to our values to get the benefit of how much stronger their economic future is when they subscribe to those values. So that's what we try to do. And thank you for asking, Howard. I hope that's clear to people. you think that um, anyone would needs any further elaboration? or?
0: No, I think that's a good start. Um, and with that, let's segue into our first topic, and I'll repeat it for our listeners again. Uh, and also remind and
1: let's 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 invite people if they want to know more about that, that we we're we're looking for information from you our audience the feedback if you'd like to know more about how this stuff translates directly into your pocketbook, please drop us an email or ask us on these calls. We'd love to chat with you I'm sorry Howard did mean to interrupt
0: uh, I say we do already have a number of uh, questions on, in email i'm sorry in emails related to the topics today, which I'll get to as we go through them um well, let's start with our first topic, and that, again, is what, co- what are the concrete steps c- people can take to reform the financial system? And these include how small shareholders can use their proxy ballots to make the voices heard in corporate boardrooms, and why such steps are critical to counter the Supreme Court's recent decision allowing unlimited corporate political expenditures. Again, a reminder, if you'd like to call in, the number is area code 347-989-8946, I believe if you hit one in the pound sign, pound sign on your keyboard, we will see your number flash up here on the screen with a question, and we will cue you in at the appropriate moment. With that, Ronaldo, I'll turn it
1: back over to you. Sure. Concrete steps. Well, first of all, you know, people have to understand at the end of the day, if wishes were horses, then everyone who was broke would have one. You know, we have to take responsibility for what we collectively create. And what we've created is an unstable financial system that just scared the bejesus out of me and everybody I know in the last couple of years, as well it should have, because what happened is we, the people, let it go. We thought that smarter, more sophisticated financial aristocrats could do a better job of running our financial future than we could, and we could go to sleep or we could take care of our hobbies and not worry about what those big guys were doing on the top floor in the penthouse suite and what we found out is they almost destroyed the entire global economy in 2008 2009 everybody suffered people are out of jobs people lost 40% up to 40% of their home equity values uh people struggle. Uh, kids uh, kids are getting forced out of college because the t- the fees are going up astronomically um, we we know what it looks like when we step back from the healthcare uh, uh field and stop regulating it and people like uh, Anthem Blue Cross, we're talking about a 39% increase again this year in California, just to pick one state. So we say, hey, we've got to have health reform. We, the people, have to, like, get – if we leave it to the lobbyists, we're, we're going to leave – 35 billion people are going to be uninsured. And there's going to be 10,000 unnecessary deaths every year in our country, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And people who have been, been insured all their lives are going to lose their insurance because they get sick. And that's just when they need it, of course. And at that point, they're bankrupt. Uh, so so people stepped up to the breach. You have to do the same thing with the ultimate tool in society today, and that is who votes stock. Now, I won't mention corporate names right now, but I have been in boardrooms. I have been in, 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 in private chambers with senior executives of major New York and NASDAQ public companies, and their conclusion, rightly so, is you don't have to worry about the little shareholder because they never show up. It's almost like complaining you got a banana dictatorship and not ever caring to vote. So the way we vote in America is we vote with stock. When you, to, when you want to influence the financial future of the country, you vote in stock. I would argue when you want to influence the political future of the company, country, you vote your stock, because as business goes, so goes the nation, whether we like it or not. Now, how do you do that practically? Well, people get proxy statements. As I said, 30% of the stock in America is owned by individuals. And by the way, the majority of those individuals are female, interestingly enough. So you've got a situation in America where the women of this country hold phenomenal voting power in the form of their proxies. The problem is, for those of you who have ever seen a proxy, it seems complex. It seems confusing. It seems like too much work and so you say, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do, and you put it in the recycle bin, And the institutions who vote the other 70% of the stock end up controlling all of corporate America. And the institutions do not, and I want to say, do not have the same goal as you do. Just know that. So if you want your goals, what's important to you on Main Street to dominate the financial agenda and the corporate agenda, you have to vote your stock. One way you can do this, which is so easy, go to MoxieVote. Someone suggested MoxieVote to me. Actually, Madeline did. And uh, so I went there, and I signed up. And no, I found no, out how
0: e- re- not Let me interrupt one second. Would you spell that for our listeners so they know exactly
1: the address? Sure. Go to MoxieVote.com, M-O-X-Y-V-O-T-E, MoxieVote.com. And that's just one example. And by the way, if you and, and you and can you can literally sign up there. And once you sign up there, they'll vote your values every single time, and you won't have to worry about reading the fine print. In fact, you can tell them to automatically do it, or you can tell them that you want to vote each con- each time. It's very, very user-friendly. Um, there's another place you can go, uh, proxydemocracy.org, proxydemocracy.org, and you can find out there what your mutual fund managers are voting. In other words, let's say that you have 100 shares in the Fidelity Funds. Well, if you have 100 shares, somebody at Fidelity is voting those 100 shares. If you like the way they're voting, great, no problem. Most people don't have a clue how they're voting. Let me give you an example. In California, they have a thing called CalPERS. Now, CalPERS is one of the largest institutions in the world because it controls the retirement fund for California state employees. CalPERS is known for aggressive shareholder democracy. It it cares what goes on in corporations, and even CalPERS, frankly, is not going to vote exactly the way you would. So you you want to be able to to monitor how your fund manager is actually voting your money. What's really critical is, and I'm going to give you an example, 15 years ago when my dear friend Hazel Henderson, and I first 15, 18 years ago now, started talking about the idea of socially responsible investing. And when my dear friend Wayne Silby started the first socially responsible investment fund, the Calvert Group, which now, of course, there's the Calvert Group, there's the Domini Fund, there's all kinds of them. That has become a $4 trillion industry in the last 15, 18 years from nothing. And the premise of the industry was if you buy stocks in companies with good values, those stocks will do at least as well over time as people who have no values running companies. And in fact, what's occurred is over a 10-year horizon, those stocks have done better than randomly selected stocks which are not value-derived. So when you buy in a socially responsible investment fund, like Calvert, like Domini, and I can give you others, when you do that, you're participating with your purchase in fund managers who, when you check on them, are voting the way you probably want them to vote in your interests. They're getting better returns, and they're not voting in stuff that's not sustainable or that's deadly to the human experience. So I want to urge people, first thing, your vote counts. Haven't we heard this since we were kids? It's not only true in politics, it's even more true in corporations. Why? Because so few individuals vote that you have a disproportionate impact when you do. Number two, the federal government recently, uh, January of this year, enacted a new statute took effect where every company, every publicly traded company, has to disclose the impact of climate change, in effect, on their operations in the future. That disclosure is there so that if you read it and you go, "Oops, this comp- company is really vulnerable to climate change," and if you believe, as virtually every credible scientist in the world, including me, if if you believe that climate change is a reality and it's accelerating, that disclosure will tell you you don't want to be in that you want to, you don't want to own stock in that company, or if you do, you want to vote your stock to get them to be less susceptible to climate change. So you gotta really you gotta be willing to understand where your money is, and but most important, you gotta be willing to vote. There's tools now on the web to do it. That's my practical advice. And I also would say one other thing. If you have the appetite for reading a little bit more, and if you have the time to make this something of value to, I believe you can increase your net worth by ten to fifteen percent compounded annually. That's a big number. Your entire net worth, so if you're worth $100,000 today, it'll be worth $110,000 tomorrow, and it'll be $122,000 the next year. You can compound your net worth by 10 to 15% if you'll read, pay attention, and be smart with your money. So that's that, that would be my message, and I would love if anybody has any specific questions, but that's sort of my overall uh, view of the ownership of stock and how it influences what's good for you and what's good for the nation, what's good for the planet. Well,
0: let me bring up the first question that we got from actually several, and I'm going to kind of amalgamate them. Um, and these go to the fact that – and you just sort of touched on this. You said that, you know, 30 percent might be owned by the public, 70 percent is owned by institutions. Even if that full 30 percent voted against the corporations, they're a minority. How can they really be heard, even though, yes, we may be able to do the votes, but how can they really be heard realistically?
1: Well, first of all, I'm so glad people say this, because um you can control a public corporation with as little as 5 to 10% of its stock. People don't uh, pe- people don't understand that the way corporations work. A because so few people vote, B because varying institutions have varying conflicting or uh, or parallel objectives. It turns out with a very small percentage of the stock, you can control an outcome. Let me give you an example. If a board of directors of a public company has what's called cumulative voting, which many do, and there are 10 people running for the board, and you accumulate all 10 of your votes on one person, that person is going to get elected, even if that person is not the person the old boy network would have picked in the first place. People don't realize they have that power. Number two, because of what are called the threshold, uh, the SEC thresholds, Certain corporate actions rise to a public visibility level that causes corporations to change if you achieve a certain threshold. So let me give you an example. A a shareholder who demands that a corporation adopt adopt a policy where the policy would be, let's say, we're going to abandon our investment in nuclear energy. And they want that proposal actually debated, and they want it discussed, and they want it voted on at the annual meeting. Well, if you have less than 1% of the stock, you're not required, the company's not required to put every idea somebody throws on them. However, when you get up to 5, 7, 8%, I'm not talking 30%. I'm talking 5, 6, percent It not only has to be on the proxy material and in the ballot, it has to be debated, it has to be discussed, and it has to take a vote. We call those kinds of shareholder-generated proposals shareholder democracy. And what's happening is shareholder democracy, which was, which caught on in the 60s and 70s, kind of like took a nosedive in the 90s, is coming back stronger than ever because this administration recognizes that strong shareholder democracy actually leads for better corporate activity. Uh, I'll give you another example. If nobody in the corporation steps up to challenge the extravagant compensation that executives pay themselves, it routinely goes through from the Compensation Committee, gets rubber-stamped by the Board of Directors. The next thing you know, you're going, why did this guy get to make $100 million this year when the janitor only made 10000 And the answer is because the shareholders didn't ask to see the books and didn't ask to investigate the, the, the executive compensation. Another set of rules that now is in place, fairly new ones, but since the crash of '08, What's happened now is executive compensation has to be evaluated in a whole new way and it has to be done regularly and publicly. The, the, the facts are there now for a small percentage of the shareholders, for example, to say 5%, far less than 30, for 5% of the shareholders to put together a motion saying, we think that the president of this corporation should not make more than 200 times what the janitor makes. That nobody's worth more than 200 times what the janitor makes, and we can find somebody good enough to do the job if he doesn't want it, or she doesn't want it. That to me is the beginning of. Some, and by the way, I'm not arguing for 200 as the standard. Um, you know, there are interesting conversations about what it should be. I'm just saying that when there is a standard, that everybody can go. Okay, that feels right. The system's not out of control. The guys in the suits at the top of the pyramid are not basically bilking the rest of us. And when and, and, and when then and when we lose our money as shareholders, they got hurt in their executive compensation. How many people, Howard, have you heard say in the last year and a half? Wait a minute, my stock in that company went down by 30%, and those guys all got bonuses? That's crazy, and it is crazy, because it wouldn't happen in your family. It wouldn't happen in your small family business. Why is it allowed to happen in corporate America? The answer is because people don't vote. So if you think 30% ain't enough, oh, i got to tell you. There is, you give me 30% of the stock of any major corporation in America, and I can guarantee you, I will guarantee you I can alter that company's profile radically and relatively quickly, meaning I could take it out of non-sustainable enterprises and push it into sustainable ones, I could take it out of non-sustainable compensation structures and put it into sustainable compensation structures, I could push that company into so many good things that would be good for it that the value of your stock would go up dramatically, and it doesn't take 30, anything above 5 and you're in in the pay zone.
0: Right. We have another sort of devil's advocate question that came in on that very point, and it, it notes that a good portion of the public shares, or the public owners are in fact the public shares of large shareholders uh, who are, in essence, the corporation, um, the people who control an Exxon and so forth. That they constitute a good chunk of that thirty percent. Can you uh, comment on that idea
1: and how you, well, you pop at that aspect I think that's of it? A, that's a complex question, but let, let me let me explain what I think the person is getting at. We have less of um, cross ownership, which is what I think that person's getting at. We have less cross ownership today than we used to have. In other words, if you go look at who owns Exxon stock, and it's Charlie Farquhar, you're going to find that Charlie Farquhar probably owns a bunch of ConocoPhillips, he probably owns a bunch of Shell, he probably owns a bunch of a number of other companies. So that individual. If they have what's called a diversified portfolio, and Howard is a wealth manager at Morgan Stanley, you of all people know this, you would diversify this individual into small cap, large cap, etc. stocks. So a large cap stock is an Exxon. Uh, you, 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 would, you would diversify, you'd spread their, their investments over a number of those. That's, that individual owning that stock is different than Exxon itself owning a chunk of Conoco, a chunk of, of Shell, or a chunk of some other major US corporation. So we have left the era where one large cap stock company, an Exxon, owns the stock of either its competitors or stocks of stocks of, of companies in parallel or competitive industries. Now, it can happen, but when it does, it's extremely clearly disclosed. And 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 usually the abuse that you see there is not that an Exxon controls a shell. The abuse you're going to see is that Exxon bought a small technology company that could have figured that figured out a way that patented a way to reduce the amount of fossil fuel your car is going to burn, and they bought that company and buried its technology. Uh, General Motors before it went bankrupt was famous for this. Uh, famous, They would buy some technology, and then they would bury it just so they wouldn't have to change their cars and their production structure because <clears throat> they could make more money. So those things do happen, but they tend to happen when uh, when a large company is burying another company because it would be embarrassing to have them around, not because large companies cross-own each other. Uh, is, that the, is Do you think that's what the person is well, driving in
0: mean, here? I think actually it's more, let's say, I'll try to put it in other words. Um, let's say we have a modern-day Ken Lay or uh, members of the board of a firm, the board members tend to be large shareholders um so in addition to institutions you have this block of large shareholders who are part of that public 30% i mean they might actually little... you
1: know uh, that that's that's a misperception is the boards of large yeah the boards of large companies tend not to be large shareholders there is an old boy network and they tend to be cross linked so um a ken lay now deceased of course could have been on the board of, and was the chairman of Enron. and As such, he was probably on the board, let's say, of an Exxon, and Exxon probably had somebody on the board of uh... of Southern California Edison, and Southern California Edison had a person on the board of Enron. I mean, it, it was it, it was a vicious old boy network. Now, two things have, have have basically broken, started to break that up. It's still an old boys network, and, 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 and primarily a, a white old boys network. Um, what's apart from the fact that women are breaking through the glass ceiling, in disproportionately small numbers, I might add, but they are breaking through, what's breaking up the old boy network is two things. Number one, the liability of being a director of a public company has gone up and up and up in recent years. And what's happening is it's getting increasingly difficult to find people who are capable and willing to be directors because you have a target on your back if you don't, really, if you don't, do, if you don't address your duties appropriately and responsibly. So boards are starting to actually have to work for their money, which is a great concept. And it's changing the old country club kind of like, oh, come on my board. You get a couple hundred thousand bucks a year, a few thousand shares of stock. And all I really want you to do is say yes every time I ask. So the CEOs are losing control of their boards, which is a good thing because a CEO, an autocratic CEO, or as I used to write in earlier days in the 90s uh, and in the early 2000s, an autocratic or imperial CEO usually is less effective at creating long-term economic gain for his company than a balanced corporation with a strong CEO and an equally strong board. Now, the SEC, it, it reinforces this trend by having independent directors, and there distinguishes between independent and dre- independent. And if you have a chairman CEO of a public company, you have to have now what's called a lead director who is to, whose job it is is to organize the independent directors. Independent directors, by definition, cannot have large blocks of stock. Uh, Just to let you know, many companies, uh, and many of you know I'm very proud to serve and have for 18 years on the board of Men's Warehouse since it went public, which is a company that uh, every year is honored as one of the best companies to work for in America, has never lost money one year in the 18 years it's been public. Uh, Men's Warehouse uh, voluntarily adopted a standard uh, more than a year and a half ago, that each of its board members would have to hold a minimum of a certain amount of stock just so each of the board members would have an aligned economic interest with the average small share owner. And and, and better company governance, good good corporate governance says, you, you, you all need to do that, and the SEC has been pushing for it. So two things have changed it. One is the incredible liability causing directors with large blocks to be fearful uh, because they can get double-targeted if they are a large holder. And two... Uh, the fact that, the, that, the, that the, the the individuals themselves are not as willing to serve, and so with that that changed, and the SEC's pressure for more disclosure, pressure for small holdings, uh, pressure for opening the boardroom, there's all these things are combining to create the opportunity for a thousand flowers to bloom, and, and it's starting to happen in corporate America. Not fast enough, but it's starting to happen. Okay, well I think we by the way, the have... word for that Howard is interlocking directorships right, and right. it was a much bigger problem uh, say fifteen years ago than it is today, and is clearly going to become less and less a problem over time.
0: okay, any last comments on that, Ronaldo, before we move on to our lightning
1: round no i think I, I, with this I'd love to, you know i I think that because the stock market's going to continue to do well in the next few years, meaning um, people are going to be invested in stock, they own thirty percent now. I'd love it if people realized that they could invest in stocks they like and believe in and make more money than taking and throwing darts at places like Fidelity Fund and not to pick on them or T. Rowe Price or the others. And they can make more money candidly if they got someone like you helping them, Howard, or they got someone like Progressive Asset Management our friend Stuart Valentine. They can make more money and do the right thing by by being an active shareholder and voting their stock, caring what happens, and their personal economic future will be dramatically improved.
0: Well, thank you for those comments. Uh, All right, let's move on to what we're now calling our expanded lightning round. And again, this is going to be a series of quick, very useful, um, and actionable ideas. And we're going to hit most of the major asset classes, such as stocks, bonds, the dollar, energy, real estate. And uh, again, the emphasis is going to be on ideas that you can use. Again, if you'd like to us a question, please dial into us at 347-989-8946. Uh, hit 1 on your keypad um, to signal us they want to call. We also invite our listeners to call in and share with us some of their own success stories uh, in terms of these asset classes and let us know what worked and, and also uh, what didn't work. Okay. With that, Ronaldo, let's plunge in with uh, the stock market first.
1: Sure. Um, well, the stock market, as we've been saying for months, would probably go sideways more likely than up or down, and that's pretty much what's happened, Howard. Right? If you've been watching the last, say, three, four months, certainly since we did the econ forecast four months ago, and there's a new one, by the way, folks, coming out, I think, next week, uh, certainly very soon, because we've completed the, the work on it. We're just at we're the final edit stage. Um, hey, Ronaldo, well,
0: before, before you move on, for some of our new listeners, would you explain exactly what the econ forecast is and how people access it?
1: Oh, sure. It's the most important financial document published in the world, I say with all humility. Uh, And and I can say that now with certainty because um, I've I've, I've made predictions uh, off of it for years, and and, uh, they keep working. Uh, The Econ Forecast, every quarter, the World Business Academy, we have a panel called the, the Econ Forecast Team, and it's made up of a lot of very interesting, extremely bright people who come together once every three months, and they project 12 months into the future from the date of their meeting what's going to happen in the global economy, what's going to happen region by region, so North America versus Asia versus Europe, et etc., versus Latin America versus Africa. And they look at each of these, they predict that, and they also predict based on individual countries like U.S., Canada, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, China, et cetera. And when they issue their report you can safely, and I'll explain why I mean it, you can safely go out and invest on their advice, and you will make a tremendous amount of money. <laughs> to me, it's amazing. Because the, uh, the accuracy, and I always say to people, don't take my word for the fact that you would have been able to see the recession coming and profited by it. You would have seen the end of the recession coming a year before it ended and profited by it. You would have seen the price of gold, before it rose and profited by it, you would have seen the price of oil rise before it happened and profited by it. So, if you want to really profit from economic information, the ultimate intelligence, economic intelligence tool on the planet, is the quarterly econ forecast of the World Business Academy, which is available to all of our members as, as part of their annual subscription. Uh, that document alone would will will, will bring as many thousands or tens of thousands of dollars to your pocket as you choose per year just by following its advice. And I never—I always say to people, don't take my word for it. Please don't take my word for it. Go look at one from three years ago. <clears throat> look at one from two years ago. Look at one from a year ago. Look at all of them. And what you'll see is a consistent predictability of information that if you would have followed it, would have made you a very rich man or woman. Now, people often say, gee, why is it that the Academy gets that right when all the main Wall Street guys didn't. And it's a very simple answer, Howard. It's because the guys and the women at the academy are looking at it with no bias. We're not trying to sell stock. We're not trying to buy stock. We're not trying to sell bonds. We're not trying to buy bonds. We have no economic stake in what's going on in the casino called Wall Street. So we are able to see the data from a neutral perspective. We're not any smarter than those people. It's just that we're not as prejudiced. We're not biased. We're not looking to have our belief system validated. Uh, as Howard knows, I, I'm a big fan of a guy who writes for um, Morgan Stanley. His name is Roach. And uh, I like what Roach writes. However, I find that a lot of the time his stuff has English on the ball, so to speak, because at the end of the day, his check is signed by Morgan Stanley. Nothing personal. I'm not accusing him of perfidy. Howard, because I don't mean insult the man. But, but clearly, he knows that part of what he's got to do is to fit into a system which compensates him extremely well. No one who serves – On the Econ Forecast Committee, not one person receives a penny for serving on that committee. So there's no bias. There's no attempt to say something that would help individual pocketbooks, and that's why it's accurate. So the service alone uh, is worth belonging to the academy. Uh, I I can't speak highly enough about it. Is that a complete answer?
0: I think that's a very good, excellent answer. Uh, Let me ask you a question. I actually want to throw out a little theory that I've noticed about the markets. Uh, particularly since the crash in 2008. I'd like to get your feedback on this and your impressions. During the, the, the crash, there were estimates that worldwide people moving to cash, institutions moving to cash, created a liquidity pool of funds in treasuries, cash, money market, bank accounts, somewhere in the vicinity of 8 to $12 trillion. It's a pretty huge number.
1: Yep.
0: Now, another phenomenon that we...
1: I would put that in context for people. $12 trillion, folks, would put it up around 20% of the entire gross domestic product for the entire planet of every man, woman, and child. So 20% of everything in the world is what he's saying got stored up in liquid instruments sitting Lit- on the sidelines.
0: Right. Lit- instruments that were not essentially earning anything. Right. Now, we do know for a fact, and, and you having worked in the corporate world as a board member know this that most fund managers for institutions the people that control those 70% of most shares they get evaluated rated and essentially paid based on their performance every quarter so we know that fact we know there's a huge amount of cash and what seems to be happening and again we don't have any hard statistical documentation of this but we do know that as that money has moved back in it tends to move back in near the end of the quarter and the the theory here is that the institutional money managers are, towards the end of the quarter, trying to position their portfolios, move some of that money out of cash, where it's earning nothing, to try to cherry-pick assets in their particular category, whether it's bonds, global stocks, commodities, whatever it is, to try to cherry-pick valuable assets that they think will rise in the next few weeks uh, and perhaps position themselves a little bit better versus their peers. And if you look at the charts of the rise in the stock market, Particularly in the US, you'll see that every quarter, the last month, December 08, March 09, June, and so on, throughout the year, right up to this last March, we had a quick upswing in the market. Usually followed a few weeks later, in the next month, the next quarter, by a little bit of a sell off. And the phenomenon may be an overlay to all of the other traditional indices that we look at relative to the market, but it's one just based on simple human behavior like, how do I make more money as an investment manager? Um, Because the market is a supply and demand phenomenon. When these managers cherry-pick in their category, it's going to raise the indexes. When the indexes go up, other investors get more confident, and they jump back in. And then you find, three or four weeks later, a minor sell-off, some profit-taking, and then whatever other economic pattern has been going on, takes over again till the end of the next quarter again. Any thoughts on something like that, a phenomenon like that?
1: Yeah, boy, am I glad you talk about it because I think the trap for 99, certainly 95% of the people who would listen to this call and benefit from it, the trap is to concern themselves with it. Let me tell you what I mean by that, Howard. See, first of all, there's two things going on in what you discussed. One is called program trading or technical trading and what that is folks is that's people who sit at computer screens you've seen movies where they 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 they, they, they make they, they show you guys sitting in large trading rooms with you know two computer screens each and series of numbers going up and down in different colors etc so there are computerized programmed trading uh, which is a huge function on Wall Street, bigger than people realize. It's, it's an enormous percentage of all the stock traders is traded by computer to computer. But that program trading is looking for minor statistical uh, variation, as Howard was looking at. And once they trip on that minor statistical variation, chance to make some money, not only necessarily for the next two or three weeks, but next, the next two or three seconds, the next two or three minutes, they can jump in, they can create a small little we- uh, wedge of profit in that, and get out. And and as as that starts to happen, other program trading computers are picking up that momentum. They see it, and they magnify the period of time over which that trade can occur, to the point where a a bubble like that, a program trading bubble, can last for weeks, in some cases, months. Now, the other thing that happens is what are called technical traders. So that could be an individual or it could be an institution sitting at their computer screen, literally looking for opportunistic trades. And sometimes in our culture, we've called them day traders. That is a, an extremely, extremely, I cannot say hardly any longer, extremely dangerous thing. I'm not smart enough to be a day trader, candidly, and I don't have the time to do it if I were. I, I, I've never met anybody smart enough to be a day trader. If you're a day trader and you're any good at it, you're making a couple of hundred million dollars a year, or certainly you're making $10 million a year more because it's that hard to do, and you're sitting in a major office somewhere in Wall Street, you're part of the casino. To be a day trader is to invite... <clears throat> A lot of fees you're going to pay. And sooner or later, if you're in a rising market, of course, you'll make money. If you're in a crashing market, you'll lose money. I would say what just happened in 2008, 2009 is the best reason to stay away from day trading. Now, what should 95% of the people on this call be doing to avoid the trap of either being A, a day trader, or B, getting caught up in technical trading or program trading, so that they don't make decisions based on these little permutations that happen over a day or a week or a month? And the answer is... Base your financial decisions, what you buy and sell, on fundamentals, folks. That's what we do at the Academy. I will put our record of trading—I mean, our investment portfolio record—up against any record in the world, and tell you we probably outperformed. I know we outperformed during the crash because I didn't lose money in the crash. So the the, the point of it is, if I think I I lost five percent, I think uh, for maybe three percent for a period of a couple of months and got it back. So the, the point of my, my comment is that you don't want to have your investments be driven by perfidy, by the, by the, by the, the dance of the, of, of the moment, by the, by, by the shiny bobble of the instant, nor by a computer that you can't beat because it's quicker. What you want to do is what, what's fundamental, what's really happening. Okay? Well, what we know is really happening in the United States today is we don't have enough infrastructure. We know what's really happening in China. They're building infrastructure like crazy. We know that that drives commodity prices. We know that's what's going on in Eastern Europe. We know what's going on in every developing situation in the world. So what's happened in the last, and we've been telling people now for about six months, you're going to see commodity prices rise. And they have been. They're going to continue to rise. China can't build all those cars unless it buys that, all that iron ore from Australia. just can't do it. You know, it's so simple to look at fundamentals. You know that the economy of the United States of America is going to continue to creak to a halt unless we reinvest in our infrastructure. We have to. We have no choice. Spark people everywhere know that. So that's going to, as the economy continues to heal as it is, and and by the way, the Academy was one of the maybe less than 2% of the economists who seven months ago said that the unemployment rate would start to drop by January, February, and that it would Get The emplo- employment picture would get progressively better every month from there till the election in November, and that's exactly what's happening. I was not surprised to see 162,000 net new jobs last week we were declared. Um, the, the, the reason the unemployment rate didn't drop below 9.7, by the way, folks, is because as those jobs were created, more people who were sitting on the sidelines decided to re-enter the workforce. So we, we absorbed 162,000 net new jobs. That's phenomenal. Okay, that's having lost 750,000 net jobs in January a year ago. So we've gone an incredible turnaround even on jobs. That means that you're going to see an increased economic activity, more pressure on commodities. So if you want to invest in something that isn't going to change in the next 30 days, you invest in commodities, if you know how to do that. If you want to invest in something that's, that's going to be predictable, let's just take, for example, gold. We talk about gold on this program a lot.
0: Well, let's, let's go back to commodities for a second. I mean, well, I think last month we did talk about some of the uh, tracking indexes for commodities.
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: For example, DBO is a common one that's used to track oil. DBA is a common one that tracks uh, agriculture. DBC is another one that tracks uh, commodities in general. Now, we're not advocating you buying these, uh, but certainly if you want to participate in that marketplace, those are things, the types of things you might want to be looking at.
1: And uh, right, By the way, Howard? Yes. Did any one of those go down significantly in the last 30 days since we said that? No. no. Okay. Have any of them gone up significantly in the last 30 days? They continue to edge up. Oil yeah.
0: certainly has gone up. Yeah. More than
1: 10%. Oil moved
0: from, you know, I think two months ago we were talking about 70 a barrel. It's now been about 86, 87.
1: And we uh, said the upward pressure was up to 85. So we, 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 the point is if you just listened last month, and I'm not saying you should go to the white commodities. Just whole what I keep saying to people – Please hold us accountable for what we say. If you take our advice, God bless, go get rich. I mean, at the end of the day, what we said last month in commodities, and that's why I didn't want to gloss over it, turned out to be incredibly accurate. Now, are we perfect 100% of the time? No. But I've got to tell you something. We're right so much more than we're wrong that it's worth listening carefully. So those commodity pressures that we continued to see last month are going to continue to move up this month. People were worried about a double-dip reception three, three months ago. I used to get that was the most common question I got. What about the double-dip? I said, there will not be a double-dip. There will be a sl- strong, slow, L-shaped recovery. As recently as December of last year, which is only four months ago, five months ago, I was getting pummeled by smart people telling me I was wrong about that. We were wrong at the academy about that. Now, history has proven we were Correct. And, 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 and we said the same, but we said retail will come back in the first quarter. And if, if not the fourth quarter, this, we said the fourth quarter of '09, would show retail sales at or above '08, and that the trend would continue up in the first quarter of '10. Both turned out to be true. I'm got to tell you, less than half the retailers in America thought that was going to be true. So I, I just want to keep coming back to what are the fundamentals. This is the lightning round, okay? The fundamentals are oil at $86 a barrel is not the top for oil. I don't recommend oil because I have a moral issue on oil, but people know that. I also don't recommend necessarily armament stocks for different reasons, but similar but different reasons. So I believe oil has some more upside. Why? As we're going to talk about in a minute, the effect of the Chinese yuan, sometimes known as the renminbi, that alone is going to help push it up. We see inflation coming the second half of this year. I've got to tell you, one of the senior partners, Deloitte Touche, just a little over a week ago, said, gee, Ronaldo, that's not what Deloitte Touche sees. So you, I'll send you what we're saying, but we're, we don't agree with you there. And I, and I, and I picked up the paper uh, yesterday, the day before, and I see that the Fed is trying to soft-pedal the inflation risk. There's an internal debate. Uh, a woman named Yellen, who's up for the potential for being vice chairman of the Fed, who the way, I think is a very capable woman from the West Coast Fed, um, it, it basically is arguing for the risk to, to deflation rather than inflation still. I think that's wrong. I think she's a smart woman. I just think it's wrong. I think you're going to see in the second half of this year, you're going to see the continuing uh, spurrings of inflation. And my guess is that the inflation rate this year will be running at least one, one and a half, maybe even 2% higher than it did last year. Now, that's important information because it tells you. if but you that, lock, that, would, that would still bring us
0: to a relatively low inflation rate in the 3 to 4% range.
1: Yeah, I mean, but but, but, but not from negative inflation. Right, power. right. 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 So, so what people need to know is not. See, what's important here is not. Is it going to be runaway inflation? No one's arguing for that. It's the direction we're going in. See, you know, it's it's you don't you don't. And this again, this is a fundamental. In fundamental investing, you don't have to hit the absolute hop, high, 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 top, 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 and you don't hit the bottom, 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 bottom. You look for the direction. You say, gee, it's turned and now it's going up. Okay, here's how I get in. If you try to hit the absolute bottom or you try to hit the absolute top, you probably lose money half the time. In fact, there's an old saying in the market. Bears make money, meaning people who are aggressive. Bulls make money, meaning people who, are, who, who pull back. And pigs get slaughtered. Meaning, if you try to be piggish and get to the top last dollar on the table before you sell at the high, 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 you probably miss it and you, it'll catch you it coming down the other side. If you try to wait to the very last second to see if it's truly bottomed out before you start to reinvest again in whatever you're looking at, you're probably going to miss it going up the other side. Whereas if you just go at fundamentals, Um, we said that we thought there was some pressure on the euro. I haven't talked to Jet Thurman over in Denmark for a while. I've got to give her a call, I think, because she's often on these calls. We started to see pressure on the euro two months ago because we saw this whole thing with Greece building. Sure enough, the euro's been disassembling. In fact, it's been artificially pushing the dollar up because of the relative strength of the euro to the dollar. The euro's dropping, and the euro, I think, has got tremendous potential weakness. Well, last month, we upped our concern a little bit higher. We said, yeah, the euro's looking nice. I certainly wouldn't buy them. If I had them, I'd probably sell them. And it's funny because Howard came into my office just before this call, and he's got a a trip to Europe. I'm giving a speech over there in in a few months, and I said, you know, Howard, normally I would have bought my euros by now, but uh, I think they're going to drop some more in value. I'm not leaving until September. I think I'm going to wait to buy my euros. They're going to be cheaper in two or three months. Howard looked at me and said, yep, I think you're right. That's a fundamentals conclusion. That's not based on some programmed trading trick. It's based on the fact that the European Union has a serious problem with Greece, hasn't figured out the way out. There is no plan yet. There's a hope and a prayer. There's a a statement of unification to try and solve the problem, but there's no plan yet. So until there's a plan, there's going to be continuing deterioration, and you're going to see that. In the spread that the Greek government has to pay for its bonded indebtedness, and what everybody's hoping, and I think so far they're succeeding, is that that contagion of the, the Greek, you know, Greece is paying 7.5%, it's junk bond rate, 7.5% on its debt, it's a sovereign nation. With the, with the, in fact, since last week, when they sold billions of dollars worth of bonds, they've lost 8% in value in one week. We would have told you if you had called and said, hey, Ronaldo, this is a very nice interest. They're like 6.5% Greek bonds. You know, Greece isn't going to go into default. It doesn't go bankrupt. Should we be buying 6.5% Greek bonds? I would have told you no. Glad, because why? Because look what's happening. They're already down 8% in one week. I'm not saying they're going to be down 50% to 100% in 10 weeks, but I've got to tell you something. That, that 8% is the beginning, not the end. Right. So, Bernardo, we're, what if, we're running a little over here on lightning round. Uh, any
0: other particular uh, short comments you want to make on any of the other asset categories? Uh, I think gold
1: China? Gold. Gold is still a hold. There's people who say it's going up for a bunch of reasons. If I get a question, I'll explain why. I've been saying, if you got it, hold it. If you don't have it, don't buy it. Uh, there's a little more pressure on the upside for gold right now than there is downside, so I think it's going to creep a little bit higher. I'm not a gold bug, so I'm not really urging people to put it in their portfolio in any quantity. Uh, real estate, uh, it's, it's a renter's market, apartment rents, particularly in states like California and Florida, where excess housing stock is on the market for rent because so many people went to foreclosure. Uh, you're going to continue to see if you're, if you're a renter, this is a great time to rent. If you're a buyer, it's a great time to buy a house, 30-year lows in, in interest or more than that. A 30-year fixed interest rate probably right now is as low as I will see it in, in the rest of my life, and it's certainly lower than I've seen it in the last 20 years. Uh, And prices are soft because there's a lot of housing stock to buy. Um, What are some of the categories people might want to know about, Howard?
0: Well, again, we talked about real estate. You just touched on that. Um, Energy, we've covered that. The dollar itself, we talked about that.
1: The dollar is going to continue to go up because of the European problem, uh, and I think it will appreciate it. It may or may not appreciate against currencies. Uh, Well, it won't appreciate against the reminby. We'll get to that. And it won't appreciate much against the reminby.
0: Let's segue to that right now, and I'll repeat the question again. Uh, For our listeners, again, the debate over whether China is keeping its currency artificially low to gain a competitive advantage, Uh, that's our general topic. And then how is this and other political debates challenging or cloaking the real challenge in rebuilding
1: U.S. and global economies? Okay, well, first of all, it's a phony debate, and it's a foolish debate. Uh, The debate really um, is about what our, our economy has two enormous structural weaknesses in the U.S. economy. One is the negative savings rate I referred to earlier. And uh, Stanley Roach from Morgan Stanley correctly recently said – Stephen, by the way. Stephen Roach correctly said that he he felt that we should have more emphasis on increasing savings and that that was the real issue and not to worry about China because what China does is it supplies us with a lot of products we otherwise couldn't afford to buy and and, and thereby takes less money from the consumer's pocket – for the goods we want, then the consumer would have to pay if we push up the price of Chinese goods. Um, I, I, I would add to that, by the way, the real issue is more than savings because you don't get the savings unless you get productivity increases. The real issue is how do you get a productivity increase? How do you get more money coming to the system because of our brains rather than because of our brawn? Now, the, the real issue with China, and people have to, and by the way, first a prediction China, uh, the, the Chinese currency, Uh, referred to as the renminbi, Uh, sometimes, as recently as last week by the vice chairman of finance for China, uh, referred to as the yuan. So if you hear, say, the yuan or the renminbi, we're talking about the same thing. Why they have two names for it, I don't know, because we all call the dollar the dollar, but they got two names. So the renminbi, which is the official Chinese currency, is probably going to appreciate at least...
0: Renminbi actually is people's currency. That's what it stands for, the actual bills with the yuan.
1: I got you. That's why they call it. I wonder what... Oh, see, thank you. See, Howard's a Chinese scholar, so he knew that. I didn't know where that name came from. That's good. So the renminbi is the going to appreciate by, I'm going to guess, at least 2% within the next 60 days or less could happen as, as soon as next week. In fact, some people are predicting it'll happen before uh, the meeting with Obama in Washington, which is coming up soon. So that you're going to see a 2% change, meaning Chinese money will be 2% more expensive the day after. In addition, I think there's a strong possibility, very strong possibility, that you'll see an additional 2 to 3% or more of increased, increased uh, price of the, of the Chinese currency between now and the year-end. What does that mean to you as Americans? Well, what it means to you, or, or frankly, what does it mean to you as Europeans or any other nation in the world but Chinese? To the Chinese first. To the Chinese it means that the price of imported goods will go up And the advantage of the Chinese labor costs on their export goods will also go up. So the Chinese will be having to charge more for what they make. And the belief is that that will give U.S. and other European manufacturers the opportunity to compete more easily. Good theory, bad idea. So if it goes up, which it's going to for other reasons, and the reason it's going to go up is because the Chinese need to raise it so they can start the conversion off of their economy, which is dominated by exports, and infrastructure supply. And so they've got all this cash they've been building up. This is one of the funniest things. They're building up this huge, they're the largest creditor of America, right? They've all this cash, and they know the dollar is going to drop in value against their own currency. So they're going, oh, gosh, we're going to take a 2 to 4% hit on all the dollars we own. And, folks, they own a lot of dollars. Do you know what the number is right now, Howard?
0: I don't know the exact number, but they are now the largest holder of American debt in the world. Yeah. They long ago surpassed the Japanese, which traditionally had done that. But the Japanese had often done it in exchange with the uh, the Federal Reserve to help balance uh, the the economic flow between the two countries.
1: Yeah, it was, so, it so just take, hold. so taking some round numbers. Let's say you got a couple of hundred billion dollars in your bank, and you know that what you're going to do is going to cause them to lose four percent of their value. That's a big number. So what are the Chinese trying to do? The Chinese just made a proposal, which is brilliant, to come to California and build a high-speed rail link from San Francisco to Anaheim and finance it with their own dollars so what they can convert their dollars from from dollars that are depreciating in value relative to the Chinese currency into dollars that will now be paid for by the fare box of a railroad system in America. So, So those savings of theirs are going to have to be redeployed. As most people know, one of the reasons commodities are going up in value is not because the Chinese are using them, but the Chinese are buying them all over the world. So what we really want to focus on with the Chinese currency is what does it mean to the Chinese? That means the cost of the goods they bring in is going to be a little bit higher, and the cost of what they ship out is going to be more, so there's going to be a reduction of the demand of their economy that is going to reduce its dependence on exports. And that's a good thing because China got caught – in the global recession of 2008-2009, depending on on having to export too much. And when it had to do that, it had to quickly reschedule itself into infrastructure building. What China needs to do and is aware of, and I predict in the next five-year plan, which I think is coming up for adoption sometime in the next four or five months, six months, for the next five-year plan, the Chinese are going to try to convert more to a consumer economy, meaning... They're going to try to make stuff that their own people want to raise the standard of living of the Chinese. That's why they're going to be raising the currency. So what does it mean to you? The pressure pushing the U.S. dollar up, which is coming out of Europe because of the insecurity that Europe's got no plan to deal with the Greek the Greek problem, that pressure will be overcompensated for by the fact that the Chinese dollar goes up. That's going to cause inflationary pressure. It's going to cause – see, if the Chinese currency goes up by 4%, 2 to 4% this year, that means, in effect, all the oil they buy – and they buy more oil than we do now – is going to go up, in effect, by 2 to 4% by using Chinese currency rather than the, um, the, the American. So I see long-term pressure on the dollar, which is going to cause the dollar to probably slide once the European Union gets their act together on Greece. So you're going to see a reduction in the value of the dollar, an increase in the value of the Chinese currency, and that's going to cause the things you buy at Walmart to be more expensive, but it's also going to give you a more stable economy, and it's going to be more stable for China. The real rub is going to come downstream when the Chinese realize that once you develop a consumer economy, you have to have a political system that will accommodate it. That's where the real pressure point will be, but that's not going to be this year.
0: Okay, that we're down to three minutes left on our call today. Um, any further thoughts on the area of Chinese currency or anything in general you want to finish with as we
1: bring this meeting to a close? Yeah, sure. I'd like to finish with a brief comment about the economy. Um, I want people to know that there's, um, the economy is picking up, so that that's, that's slow L-shaped recovery we've been talking about is gathering steam. So you're going to see a nice increase in the economy over the last six months of this year. You're going to see unemployment rates drop next month below 10.7%. They're going to be uh, below uh, 9.7%. You're going to, you're going to see um, a significant, uh, my guess is, a minimum of two to three perc- a tenth of a percent of point between now and November, conceivably as much as a half a percentage point drop, which means huge numbers of people are being reemployed. Uh, second thing you're going to see is, it's already happened, by the way, second quarter in a row where the number of house foreclosures is going down, second quarter in a row where the number of defaults on credit cards is going down. So you're seeing the financial picture start to restabilize. Unfortunately, because we have no financial reform yet, which everybody's got to go push for it with their congressman, it's critical. We now have more of those screwy derivatives in the world, over $700 trillion, than we had, which triggered the collapse, by the way. That we had in 2008, there was only about 200, 650 trillion at that time. So we have got to push for financial reform regulation. We absolutely have to or we're going to be in worse shape in three to four years than we are today. My main message is, don't go to sleep, folks. We are the sleeping giant that has to awake. We have to vote with our dollars. We have to vote at the ballot box. We have to take control of our future. We have to be self-actualized. And if we do that, not only will we be happier, not only will our economy be sustainable, but we'll be a whole lot richer. Good luck. God bless.
0: Bernardo, thank you for those comments. We have a minute left. If we have any other last-minute questions, we'd like to take them now. We do have one, um, and the phone number I have here, I think there's two, actually, but it shows up as 1111111, and you are on the line.
1: This is Dick Buxton. Ronaldo, you, this is one of your very best uh, lectures. You covered uh, a very large uh, uh, number of subjects, did it very well, and uh, just wanted to ask you if you had read Paulson's uh, uh, recent book, On the Brink, which describes how this country was actually brought to the brink. Actually, I, I haven't. I, I, Dick, I did read a couple of um, of um reviews of it, and I've read a, a summary of it, haven't read it myself. Uh, from what I have read about the book, and I don't want to say anything too detailed because not having read it, I feel, it would be unfair to judge it. Um, what I have what I gather from it is, it's a bit of a mea culpa. Uh, he, he's owning a part of the responsibility, which well he should. He also is defending, and I think he's right, that we absolutely had to intervene. People who think that we had a choice back then, do not understand the nature of the gravity of the situation that we were in. So we, we Paulson, we needed... I mean, I, I don't think any responsible person would say that uh, the Paulson-Bush um, $750 billion uh, fund was uh, a foolish. I think it's clearly clear now that, that we needed to be able to spend that money to rebuild our economy and get people employed. In a similar vein, we needed to intervene in order for the crisis to not get to worse than Great Depression levels. What I'm told the book doesn't deal with, and I understand why, is it doesn't deal with, A, the selectivity that Paulson used. Why was Goldman Sachs, of which he was the former chairman, allowed to not only participate in all the ways that all the other companies did, and get 100% of their money back when AIG collapsed? Uh, uh, Why did that happen? And for people who want to read more about that, go to the Rolling Stone uh, report that Rolling Stone magazine did a brilliant investigative journalism piece on the role of Goldman Sachs.
0: Yeah, I think it was a Mike Taibbi piece.
1: It was a Mike Taibbi piece. Yeah, it was great. And and I think, uh, to, and by the way, Dick, great to have you on the call. I'm, I'm really pleased that you, you were listening. The other thing I think it's important for people to know about Paulson, because uh, I think people tend to make, they like to tend to paint people with a white hat or a dark hat, and and when you do that, it loses all meaning. So there's a lot of things for which I think Paulson can justifiably be blamed in, in as I say, the selectivity. Uh, I think in creating too big to fail, because I'm not sure that's really something we want to encourage and or allow. But there's a lot of things Paulson did right. And, and and in a crisis like we just came through, I certainly am glad that whatever the combination of choices he made, particularly as the administration was leaving office, gave a platform to Obama that Obama was smart enough to work off of such that the combination created the prosperity we're enjoying today and will continue to enjoy for the next few years versus the utter chaos. I mean, he was staring into the abyss. And I I think that the the one review I read that I thought was compelling, uh, Paulson himself admits he was shocked by the magnitude and the depth of the black hole he saw. I think he was right. That hole was real. And what shocked him was he'd spent his whole life in the casino of Wall Street and never thought that the guy who owned the casino could actually lose the building as well. And that's what hit him like a thunderbolt, and I think that catalyzed him into action. And I believe um, what happened, I mean, we can all say we could have done it better by 10% here or there, 10% less or 10% better. At the end of the day, what he did was vital, and his book, records that to the best of my knowledge, and to that point, it's correct. I do believe it's biased in that. It, it, towards Goldman, however, and his role.
0: Okay, well, Ronaldo, that we are out of time, actually a bit over time. I'd like to thank everybody for dialing in today. We had a fairly huge audience, our largest one to date. Uh, and with that, we're going to conclude this call, and we hope you're all back with us uh, in May for the uh, call on the second Thursday of the month. And with that, I bid you all a good day. Thank, thank you, and goodbye. Bye, Bye.